0: Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom ravit Karnak.
1: I'm Cristiana Figueres.
0: And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we are going to grapple with the issue of 1.5 degrees. Can it be saved? Is it still alive? Is it time to give up on it? We're going to look at the science and think about it from different perspectives. We're also going to talk to Michael Mann, distinguished climate scientist. And we have music from Luke Wallace. Thanks for being here. So friends, we have a lot to get into. This is a very um, consequential and important episode. But just before we do, Christiana, your three-part miniseries on living from, with, and as nature was a masterpiece. I absolutely loved it. I finished the final episode this morning... On the train back to Devon from London, and just loved it. I think that I also think Clay did a brilliant job of shaping the music and making it all feel brilliant. Brilliant but
1: job! The music was beautiful.
0: That <laughs> it was it was wonderful. Congratulations!
1: Well, thank you. It was a, a definitely team uh, team effort, both with Isabel and her team, but also the whole editing and production.
0: Anyone who hasn't listened to it should go and listen. I have one tiny complaint, and that is you do this beautiful bit about the role of the pandemic in reconnecting us to nature. You don't mention the fact that I wrote a children's book about it with an accompanying TED Talk. I was waiting for my shout-out, and it didn't come.
1: I am so apologetic. Oh, did you write a,
0: a
2: children's book about <laughs> that uh, with a, an accompanying TED Talk? Could you just
1: tell us what the name Narrated of the book
2: Narrated by was? Jane Goodall. Yeah, exactly. What was the it, book
0: called? It's called What Happened When We All Stopped. And it needs to be boosted up from its position on 4 million on Amazon ratings to like 3 million or something. So I was hoping for my Christiana shout out, but I forgive you. It's fine.
1: Okay, well, we can definitely do an addendum. How's that? (laughs) And um,
2: just before we get into it, can I just say one thing? I know that we're a climate change podcast, but I I didn't want to fail to acknowledge the passing of Alexei Navalny, who in my view may be the bravest politician in history, who just facing certain arrests, quite likely torture and even probable certain death, showed no fear, and went straight back to Russia. And his his loss is enormous, but I believe it, it was an act of just unimaginable courage. And I just wanted to acknowledge that
0: nicely done, Paul. Could not agree more. It's just been horrifying to watch that and inspiring, as you say, to look at people's bravery and willingness to stand up yeah. to heroism, of,
1: heroism heroism
0: yeah and and his I mean his wife is going to need protecting now Yulia isn't she because she's clearly going to pick up the mantle and Putin's enemies generally get um, bad things happen to them so I hope that doesn't happen to her
2: well just amen to a, a very very brave politician very brave yeah. very inspiring uh, braver than Taka Carson don't get me onto his interview with Vladimir Putin,
0: we're here to talk about one and a half degrees. Yeah, but do watch the John Stewart section on that. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> now, we are going to uh, get into a thorny issue that is going to raise all kinds of people's um, reactions as it should. And that's around this concept of 1.5. First enshrined in the Paris Agreement um, as a stretch target. And since then, we realise that really the game is to keep within 1.5 degrees because the impacts of 2 degrees are so much worse. But also over the last few years, there's been this creeping sense that it's beginning to slip away from us. And that is reflected in the media. It's reflected in the common dialogue. It's also reflected very strongly um, to me personally in meetings that I had in Dubai since then with philanthropists, NGOs, senior people in governments, think tanks, who often, surprisingly often, will come to the meetings and say, you know what? 1.5 is gone. Let's be realistic about that. Um, People are asking us to be honest about the state of the situation. We're not going to keep the warming to that. So let's accept reality. And rather than pretending that we can still do this, let's instead try to craft a deal to say, let's keep it within two degrees, which is still, you know, according to this telling, kind of feasible to do. Now, this is obviously um, a very difficult and thorny point. Um, the science tells us the impacts of two degrees are way worse than the impacts of 1.5. But it is also true that there is this slow march that is happening as we don't do what is required of us in this decade. And the line keeps trending upwards. And the reason we're talking about this now is because that evidence base got a big boost in recent weeks when the Copernicus report on climate change came out. Copernicus is a big climate science service that is funded by the European Union to help the EU deal with climate. And it came out a couple of weeks ago with a report that said that we went over 1.5 for most of the months last year, And that we are now in a situation, January was also the warmest month on record. So we're facing a situation where this 1.5 degrees is just kind of becoming a reality. And I'm seeing that creep into discourse. So we're going to get our arms around that this week and say, what do we really think about that? What are the consequences? And Michael Mann is going to tell us the science. But with that as a setup, I would like to invite both of you to come in and just provide your reflections um, with what I've shared about um, some of these important issues that are shaping our world.
1: Paul, you jump in.
2: Okay, well, I mean, we touched upon this a little bit just before we started recording. I do get it that, you know, we we should be setting a a target and we should be achieving it, and that's kind of the point of the 1.5 being written in or under 2. But for me, ultimately, we're just trying to minimise the damage that's being done to the Earth system. And minimising the damage is about reducing the greenhouse gas emissions. And so... You know, if our house was burning down, and it, you know, a third of it was going to burn down, or a half was going to burn down, if the fire people were talking, is it going to be a half the house, or is it going to be a third of the house that's going to burn down? And they were having such a long conversation that they weren't pointing the hoses at the flame. I think that would be the wrong approach. All challenges on climate change relate to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that we should focus on that, and we should have a target. And we should measure ourselves against that target. But the idea of saying, well, we should surrender one and adopt another, I, I personally can't see how that helps you reframe what you're trying to do. We're just trying to reduce emissions as quickly as possible to minimise the danger.
0: Can, can I just come in there before Christiana comes in, just as a quick point? So I, I take your point, certainly, that many of the actions don't change. But like, for example, there's now this new mandate under the UN for all countries to come back in two years' time in Brazil with nationally determined commitments that are in line with 1.5. Now, that is a requirement on 198 countries. If that target slipped to two degrees, they would put different targets in place. So I agree with you on one level that it's just about many of the actions would still be the same. But the scale of ambition actually is quite significantly determined by the outcome that we're trying to drive towards and how specific that is. So it does make an impact in policymaking, in strategy, and other things. Yeah. Good point yeah. Good point. Let's see how Christianus threads that needle because I can't
1: um well I'm not sure that I can either but um we we will listen to a very important conversation that we had with um, Michael Mann about this um very renowned scientist climatologist but but let me just put a couple of things out. Um, first, let us be very clear that there is no scientific evidence that 1.5 as a ceiling uh, temperature has been breached permanently. Period.
3: Yeah. Right.
1: Mm. That it yeah. has been breached and then period new paragraph. No. What and 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 that's the problem. You know, when you only read half the sentence in any report. Right. What the Copernicus <laughs> report says quite clearly. Is that almost every single month last year was a record-breaking month? And what is new? And we knew that, right? We knew that throughout the whole year. What is new about the Copernicus report is that they take the whole twelve years, twelve months. Sorry, they take the whole twelve months and they say, look, the average temperature increase across those twelve months was above one point five for that year, for the year twenty twenty three. And so let's understand that a it is an annual breach it is a year breach it is not a permanent and also that it wasn't an el nino year that didn't help matters. Yeah. Now the report also says el nino didn't affect it that much it is on the underlying heating is what is most responsible. So the concerning part about this is that we used to breach 1.5 in a month, you know, once in a while, a month or a week or whatever. And now it's a year's breach. So it is definitely concerning and we should not underestimate that and not, you know, make light of it because it is the first time that the yearly average is above 1.5. And at the same time, Paul, I totally agree with you. Yes, it was a year in which we breached that it is not permanent. And above all, what do we want it to be? That's the question. If we give up and we say, okay, 1.5, you know, is gone. Therefore we're not going to make any effort. Then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we've talked about this ad nauseum on this podcast, because the moment that we give up, we lose anchor and we're off, you know, into, into the storm, And then who says that we will stop at 2 degrees or 2.5 or 3? If we lose the anchor, the virtue of the 1.5 as an anchor, as a political anchor, is fundamental because we have to continuously correct course to that anchor, to that maximum temperature rise. If we correct course to a reference points that keeps on moving, then we're really in big trouble. So there is no guarantee that we will be able to keep as a permanent fixture that we will be able to keep our warming uh, to a maximum of 1.5. There's certainly no guarantee. But what we can guarantee is that if we give it up right now, we will definitely lose it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so the choice that we have to make is, are we willing to continue to keep it as our North Star, as our reference point? Does it get every time more difficult? Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> Just a, t- a tiny point, uh, Christiana. I, I heard, um I was uh, listening to a, a book uh, about climate policy, and somebody was saying that uh, President Kennedy didn't say, we're going to get humans 98.5% of the way to the moon. <laughs> you know, you have to have the power of a specified goal.
0: Yeah, and I think that what's interesting about what you're saying, Christiana, I think that while while you have your goal set by science, so 1.5 degrees is the level at which we can have a reasonable degree of assumption. We're not going to trigger these alarming feedback loops that are going to really destroy so much of the natural environment and humans' um, well-being. Once you don't have that as your North Star, but instead you shift into the world of saying, we're going to set the target based on what we feel is achievable, then you're entering a much more movable world where everybody, and I mean, you you know better than anyone in the world how difficult it is to negotiate those things. So is that part of it that we just cannot let go of the idea that science should guide the decision-making around where we need to go?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly the point. The Paris Agreement is science-based, and honestly, all our actions should be science-based. That is, as I say, the anchor. I, used to, I, I don't do it anymore, but I, I used to sail. And I can't tell you the terrifying feeling that it is to wake up in the morning and all of a sudden, you know, you the currents have dragged the anchor, you are adrift, and you have no idea where you're going. It is a terrifying feeling. We wow. have remind to me not keep- to
0: go sailing with you. That does sound frightening.
1: No, definitely not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: it is it is a it we have to in fact dig the anchor in every time more. So contrary to some people who say, Okay, let's give up and you know, let's just accept this. For me, every time that we have a breach, whether it is a week, a month, a year now, which is horribly painful, it is even more of a reason to. Stick that anger even deeper in because we cannot lose it as our reference point.
0: So, so what would you both say then? I mean, the the, the conversation that there is a real debate going on about this that might be visible to some listeners and might not be to others. And it's happening slightly behind the scenes where many of these things come from, where people who might give away money or run powerful NGOs, or maybe they're senior in governments, are sort of getting together in rooms and saying, you know, we think 1.5 might be gone and we need a strategy for what we then go to. And they're beginning to like lay the ground for those conversations around what do we shift to at that point? And not everybody, and it's not nefarious, right? These people are doing this because they're trying to find a way through to get the same outcomes that we want, right? But they're, they're looking at it from a slightly different perspective. I'd love to hear, maybe Christiana, starting with you, what would you say to people who are sort of beginning to be drawn into that narrative?
1: You know, Tom... I wonder if we can pull in the concept of an insurance here. We all buy insurance, you know, against disasters for, I don't know, for our house burning down or health insurance or, you know, what, whatever the threat is. That doesn't mean, so we want to have a fallback and I think, If some people are preparing a fallback, that's actually pretty healthy. Thank you Mm. very much. But it can't be the outcome toward which we are cruising. That's my point. It is a fallback. So we have an insurance as a fallback. Yeah. That's prudent because the consequences of what we're dealing with are pretty humongous. So we have a fallback. That doesn't mean that if you buy fire insurance for your home, that you then focus all your actions on putting a fire on or starting a fire in your home. You put all of your actions on preventing a fire in your home and you put everything that the law demands plus everything else to prevent the fire in the home. And you still buy fire insurance. The thing is that we should not be so simplistic to think that these two things are mutually exclusive. We buy the insurance, i.e. we prepare in case, but we also do everything, absolutely everything, within our uh, capability to avoid the threat.
0: Ed,
2: yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the phrase that comes to my mind is um, appeasement. Um, that we we can't really just accept uh, slicing off uh, these these targets. Um, you've got to remember that, in, in a certain sense if we went to a kind of war economy situation tomorrow and if we uh, did some kind of geoengineering intervention, we could we could get it below one degrees in 10 years, frankly. Uh, I mean, it would be very weird, but it's possible. So we have to recognise there's sort of agency here. And I think the danger is this notion of appeasement. You know, let's just say, I'm going to say something stupid. Let's say it, it went up to three degrees, God forbid, at some future date. 1.5 would still be our target to get back to, so it doesn't really ever change. 1.5, it's an anchor. That's
0: the point. So, um, you you mentioned something there which I'd like to get. I know we need to go to the conversation with Michael Mann, who actually, I you two did this conversation because I was on the train. And I listened in, and it was brilliant. And he addresses many of these different issues in an incredibly um clear way. So that that will be very helpful, I think. But just before we do, um, that you just mentioned geoengineering, Paul, and actually, you know. The Copernicus report is terrifying. It points out that we're, you know, whether or not we're quite there yet, the trajectory is clear of where we're going, and 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 we should all obviously be appropriately alarmed about what's in there. It, the other hedge against failure, or the other insurance policy, to use your world's words, Christiana, is to begin now to scaffold the governance, the technical work, the thinking that might be necessary for geoengineering interventions and of course there's very different types of geoengineering from the reversible to the irreversible and again this is something that's that splits opinion there are prominent people including former guests on this podcast who are vehemently opposed to this and there are others who say well you know this is a sort of practical step we need to be taking this just in case anyone want to wade into that (laughs)
1: just Paul dis- Paul's head disappeared into his in his uh, hands. hands. He had his head Why, in his hands. What, I don't know If he was
2: listening carefully? What was that, Paul? Well, look, uh, I was I was discussing uh, with a with a a, a a large language model the other day, geoengineering, and they said it's like a sort of crazy uncle who says you might want to try deep frying the cranberry juice, you know, uh, the cranberry jelly uh, at, at, at Thanksgiving. You know, it's sort of weird. That what AI said. Yeah, <laughs> amazing, really. Uh, but it, it, the point being, it's it's a sort of radical thing that you could do, um, and uh, you know, it might be fun and it might be a disaster. It's got a sort of strange appeal, um, but fundamentally, uh, it may well be that uh, humans, you know, our descendants, maybe in our lifetimes, that there's some sense that some tipping point has occurred that's so dramatic, some kind of geoengineering intervention needs to be made. But that is not now. And so once again, a bit like losing your 1.5 degree anchor, it's another reason to deflect yourself from the fundamental task, which is reducing greenhouse gas emissions now, which is really actually incredibly easy to do. Let's remember, uh, there was a greater investment in renewable energy last year than there was in fossil fuels. We've kind of reached the most important tipping point. We should just Pile ahead with that. And I think geoengineering is something that we unfortunately will have to consider, but um, practical steps to implement anything right now would be insane because there's so much mitigation to do.
1: Here's what I've been thinking about that, because it's something that has been on my mind, obviously. Um, Honestly, I used to be flat out against geoengineering because I thought if we go there, we really drop the anchor again, you know, lose the anchor. And 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 it just makes me incredibly um, nervous to do that. Here's my more updated version of it. If we can put in more research and more funding into geoengineering, assuming that it is one of the insurance measures that we can take, Against runaway climate change, then I think that we should make some space for it. The part that is very, continues to be very concerning to me is what if the consequences of geoengineering are even more devastating than heating itself? Because yeah. that's the piece that is very scary to me about geoengineering that we don't know what the consequences are. And so to have an insurance policy, the, the purpose of the insurance policy is to mitigate risk, to bring the risk down. We're not there yet with geoengineering. For me, and I'm very happy to you know entertain a, a different conversation, but my sense is that geoengineering is not yet to the point where it actually helps us bring the risk down. It actually is another type of risk, the magnitude of, we have no idea. And yeah. so to apply something like that, that could have the potential of even more damage to humanity and to our natural environment, than the problem we're trying to solve or mitigate against or insure against, that's the piece that is very, very difficult for me.
2: And, and Christiane, if I can just follow that up saying, you know, medically, it's like a blood transfusion or something, it could buy you a bit more life but it's not going to solve the problem and it has its own risks. And I mean, if we're talking just about, you know, different plans to reduce energy from the sun, if that's sulfate particles in the atmosphere or if it's mirrors in space or whatever it is, um, actually neither of those will do anything to... to uh, uh, reduce the acidification of the oceans, which is, you know, stopping the plankton forming their shells. And so, you know, the, the geoengineering solutions are not long-term. They are short-term, buy you some time. Uh, but actually, long-term, the, you know, the two things you have to do are reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we know, and bring back nature and, and the ability of nature to sequestrate. That's the only safe journey out with geoengineering as a as a, a decade or two uh, time buyer it, to, to avoid a tipping point, in my view.
1: Well, maybe, Paul, maybe, right? Maybe geoengineering is actually has negative long term consequences, which we don't know. Yes.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um,
1: Sarah, Sarah, by the way, our wonderful Sarah is putting here in our little notes. uh, Thank you, Sarah. She's reminding us, Tom and Paul, that we did discuss this issue with Elizabeth Colbert. Um, when we interviewed her about her book Under a White Sky. And she talked about this, about the danger of the unknown consequences of geo um engineering.
0: Yeah. A beautifully named book, right?
1: Well, I mean, it's
2: kind of in the title of the book, like, The Sky Stops Being Blue. I don't want that to happen. I don't, Well, not
0: really. <laughs> it well, it cool. is. I mean, that's the amazing thing about Elizabeth Colbert. It's a terrifying concept, but it's actually a beautiful name in a way that she's able to sort of bring it out. I mean, I, think I don't that, know if
1: beautiful, but very eloquent. Very, very eloquent.
0: Compelling. Evocative. Evocative. <laughs> I, I um, wouldn't say beautiful. It's, 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 <laughs>
2: look at that lovely blue sky. And Tom's like, oh, no, not really. I wish it was white.
0: <laughs> I think it's really interesting to talk about this. I mean, it reminds me of time. I mean, I remember... And you guys, we both remember this too. You know, a while ago, there were lots of people saying we shouldn't talk about adaptation. That was giving up. We should only talk about mitigation. If we talk about that, we can adapt to it. Then we'll give up on mitigation. And now there's more of a nuanced picture of like, well, we should mitigate, but we're going to have to adapt as well. And I rather suspect that will be the nature of the conversation on geoengineering. I realize I've taken us a bit off piece from where we started, but I, I think it's quite connected. And I think that this is this is going to be an increasingly important topic. I mean, for what it's worth, from from my point of view. I completely agree with all the risks you highlighted, Christiana, and the time-bound nature of it, Paul. However, I kind of feel like, you know, a bit like in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The um, The Ministry for the Future, this is likely to happen by somebody at some point. And building the institutional governance framework, the technical capability, the ability to understand the potential adverse consequences from doing this might make doing it a bit more likely. I think that is a risk. But I think not doing that work because we're afraid of making it more likely that we'll actually do it, and thereby storing up this big uncertainty down the road, massively increases the risk that comes later. So I realise that's a slightly nuanced point, but I feel yeah, yeah, nuanced. Um, honestly, it was like when I was
2: I was <laughs> saying to um, what was it Kingsmill Bond, I was like, "You're not being realistic, Kingsmill. You're not being real. you're not being nuanced."
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, we should actually talk to a real expert. So Dr. Michael Mann, uh, previous guest on this podcast, one of the world's best known um, climate scientists, been doing this for a long time. He's a distinguished professor um, in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania. But much more than that, he is just a huge um, voice and intellect and personality in the world of climate. He has been pushing for meaningful action for decades. His books include dire predictions, the hockey stick, the climate wars, the new climate wars. Um, he is a he is a brilliant person, friend of the podcast, and we were delighted that he um, uh, agreed to come back and had a conversation with the two of you, Paul and Christiana, just yesterday that I listened into. So let's go to the conversation with Michael.
1: Michael, thank you so much for jumping here online uh, with us. At such short notice. And welcome back to the podcast. We had you several years ago and uh, we're thrilled that you have agreed to come back um, and chat with us about several really important things right now. Um, And could we start, Michael, with the Copernicus report? Because it has made a lot of waves Not because it has confirmed that last year was the warmest calendar year uh, ever. And so it would be really great to understand from you, Michael, what does it mean to breach the 1.5 degree for a year? And what are scientists looking for in terms of a more, I don't even know what to call it, more permanent breach, longer lasting breach, perhaps is what what I mean.
4: Yeah, thanks, Christiana. It's great to be with you. Uh, great to be with you, uh, Paul, um, and happy to uh, sort of tackle that question. So, I mean, it is an important milestone uh, of, of the bad kind. Um, you know, the, each each new threshold that we breach, you know, represents an ever upward, you know, ratcheting up of of, of the climate crisis, and so. It is important in that sense, uh, but it's also important, as you allude to, to provide some perspective here. What we're really concerned about, uh, when when we talk about policies, for example, uh, global uh, policies uh, aimed at keeping warming below that critical one and a half degree Celsius level, what we're talking about is the trend line. When does the trend line uh, cross 1.5 Celsius? Because that's basically, you know, that establishes when we've at least uh, semi-permanently crossed that threshold and many of the impacts that we talk about of one and a half celsius warming really refer to the trend line crossing one and a half celsius Um, so you know this year um, the trend line hasn't crossed uh, that number the trend line you know, if we continue with business as usual, um, you know, if we continue uh, with current carbon emissions, then the warming will more or less continue at the current rate, and we will cross that threshold sometime early to mid-next decade, um, you know, mid-2030s. Mid, uh, what happened uh, this year is that uh, we had a major El Nino event, and that adds to the trend line. So you can think of we're riding this ramp. And then you get this extra boost uh, above Mm -hmm. where that ramp is because of the warming effect of El Nino. And a big El Nino event like this one can warm the planet a few tenths of a degree Celsius, a couple tenths to a few tenths of a degree. So that was enough. If you take sort of where we are with the trend line, maybe about 1.2, you add on the warming effect of a big El Nino, about 0.3, well, you get 1.5. So that boosted us above that uh, above that level for the year. But again, some perspective is useful here. If we're talking about breaching one point five Celsius, we we had done that you know years ago. Um, if we're talking about uh, an individual day or an individual week or an individual month, we've already crossed that threshold. Um, now we're talking about an individual year. Um, so there's this progression. Um, the real problem is if we're talking about not a day, a week, a month, a year, but a sort of multi-year period. In other words, when the trend line crosses one point five Celsius, the policies aimed at limiting warming below that amount are really aimed at limiting warming. Uh, you know, uh, the, l- keeping the trend line below one and a half Celsius, and that's still possible, but. We've done the math and we will know it will take a dramatic reduction in carbon emissions. Uh, We've heard the numbers before, but with each year of relative inaction, they become more stark. So now we have to decrease carbon emissions by about 50% in less than a decade and bring them down to zero by the middle of the century. It's doable. It's not, you um, you know, the obstacle, isn't the physics, isn't climate physics, it's not the technology. Right now, the obstacles are political. And so in in principle, those obstacles can be overcome. Um, But that's where we are. And and it is important, right? Because it did, each time we pass a new threshold, it's a reminder that we're not making enough progress. And pretty soon, when that trend line crosses 1.5 Celsius, we've missed a major milestone and, and we're committed to worse and worse impacts.
1: Uh, Michael, so let me just let me just understand again, or ask you to emphasize again. So that yearly breach, that year breach over the space of twelve months, has not impacted the reduction targets that we had from before. We are still needing the um, net zero by twenty fifty for sure, and fifty percent by the end of this decade. We still remain within that let's say, that envelope of reduction targets. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, this the, the El Nino event doesn't change that. The trend line is pretty much on track for where we've predicted it would be, given our ongoing carbon emissions. And so the math is still the same here. We can prevent that trend line from crossing 1.5 Celsius, but it's, it, you know, that window of opportunity is narrowing uh, with each year where emissions remain close to uh, where they are. Okay, so that's a really good description of
2: where we are. Thank you, uh, Michael, super appreciate it. I've been digging into your wonderful books, not least your latest, Our Fragile Moment, and there's something in in so much of what you say that I think is super important, and I wanted us to kind of drill into for, for a second. It's this notion that on the one hand, you know, we've got a really serious situation. And on the other hand, if we flip to a kind of doomism, we can get kind of paralyzed or, or whatever. I mean, I confess, I personally have been guilty of this. You know, I've sometimes drawn on the authority of kind of like, I know how bad this is and you don't, you know, and I've been kind of full of the sort of pride of my knowing how terrible it is. But you make a really brilliant point, I think, that we have to get this balance correct where we honour the seriousness of it, but we don't accidentally go into a kind of crazy paralysis. Can you talk a little bit about how how people, our listeners can kind of optimise their response to this kind of pretty shocking information?
4: Yeah, you know uh, our, our good friend, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, Steve Schneider, the great Steve Schneider, used to say, "The truth is bad enough. All uh, right, <laughs> we don't have to exaggerate uh, the, the case, um, the the science to uh, to make the case for dramatic and and concerted and immediate reductions in carbon emissions. We are already seeing dangerous climate consequences." Uh, the coastal inundation, the heat waves, the wildfires, the floods, it's here. Dangerous climate change is here. And the question is, how bad are we willing to let it get? And so the truth is bad enough. Um, We don't have to exaggerate it. And by the way, when we do exaggerate it, there's the danger that we end up sort of leading people down this path of disengagement after all, if it's too late to do anything about the problem, then why bother yeah and you know in, in uh, some of my past writing, I, I've pointed out that there are some bad actors out there polluters and, and those you know advocating for their agenda who have at times fanned the flames of doomism because they realize that if they can take climate activists who would otherwise be on the front lines and convince them it's too late, and put them on the sidelines, well then it's a win for them. And so we have Mm. to make sure, as I like to say, to communicate both the urgency, and it's absolutely essential because this is urgent, the urgency and the agency. The fact that the science tells us it's not too late to prevent the worst consequences.
1: And the other thing that I think is related to that very important point, uh, Michael, is the crying wolf uh, Mm. syndrome. Right. That by um, by by crying doom and gloom way too often, we yes, we we sideline people who go into sort of mental freeze mode, a completely overwhelmed, pull the covers over their heads. There's right. nothing that we can do. But also we may disauthorize the voice of science because there could be an interpretation that science has called or not science, but but that those that interpret the science or speak about it have cried wolf Mm -hmm. way too long and way too often.
4: Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, the reality is they're going to do that anyway. <laughs> they say that, you know, the, the bad actors out there who've been looking to discredit, you know, the case for climate action and environmental sustainability are always going to claim that we're exaggerating. They're always going to claim that we've cried wolf. But why make it easy for them?
5: <laughs> and, <Yes>. you know,
4: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I will quote another Steve Schneiderism, <laughs> which is that. um You know, we can be both truthful to the science and make a compelling case for action at the same time. It's possible Mm. to do both. And we
1: don't need to exaggerate because as you just said, it's bad enough. The truth is bad enough.
4: Truth is bad enough. Um, You know, another thing uh, Steve used to say is um, when you look at all the possible sort of climate scenarios, the, the, the two least likely are, no problem at all, and end of the world. <laughs> it's not going to be either of those. It's going to be somewhere oh, in between.
1: In between, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Very good way to and, put it. And uh,
2: you you have also commented on like you, you don't see the science doesn't show very abu- abrupt tipping points in the in the near future, right? That, because a lot of people will will say we're at the tipping points now and we're just about to lose it, and 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 you said this science doesn't really support that.
4: Yeah, you know, it's it's we, we we sort of have a have to have a nuanced conversation when it comes to tipping points. Um, when it comes to global average temperature, um, we we say that it, it behaves pretty linearly, which is to say, it is a function. The temperature that we get is a function of the cumulative carbon emissions up to this point in time, and and the science is pretty robust on that. Now, the consequences of the warming uh, may not be so linear. They can be more abrupt. They can exhibit tipping points. Uh, One example is the the so-called ocean conveyor, the great ocean conveyor. And there's been some press about that. There was a study that came out about a week ago um, emphasizing the possibility that that current system can collapse and it can do so abruptly. Um, And the science tells us that you put enough fresh water into the North Atlantic by melting you know the Greenland ice sheet, for example. Uh, you freshen those waters. You can inhibit the sinking motion that drives that global ocean conveyor that helps deliver, you know, warm waters to parts of Europe and North America. Well, the, um, the
2: UK. If I could just shout out to our UK listeners, we're on. You know, London's on the same, what was it, latitude as kind of Halifax, Nova Scotia. We could be completely frozen, right?
4: Yeah, and you know, part of that is uh, is the the North Atlantic Drift, that ocean current, the the conveyor. Part of it is just the the westerly winds. You know, you're getting maritime uh, influence because the the the, the air is coming off the ocean and it's warmer than say on the east coast of the U.S., which is much more continental climate. So it's both the atmosphere and the ocean working together. Um, and you know, if your listeners have seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow, which is premised on the catastrophe the movie is a caricature of what would actually happen but there would be some negative consequences it would probably have a, a hugely negative impact on uh on, on marine productivity and and sort of uh fish populations in the north atlantic which we rely upon so much um for food uh it would probably lead to an even greater uh uh amount of sea level rise along the east coast of the U.S. And that has to do with oceanographic physics that I'm not going to go into. But if that ocean current system were to collapse, sea level would actually come up faster along the east coast of the U.S. Uh, So um, so that's a potential tipping point that if you melt enough ice and you freshen those waters enough, it goes through an abrupt transition where you go from the state that we're in, where we have a very healthy sort of uh, conveyor belt current, uh, it can collapse uh, fairly abruptly. The ice sheets can exhibit tipping point behavior. Um, you know when those ice shelves collapse. Uh, those ice shelves that are help supporting the uh, West Antarctic ice sheet as those ice shelves collapse, that destabilizes the ice sheet, and larger uh, parts of that ice sheet can then calve into the ocean. Um, And so um, there are tipping point elements in the climate system, and we don't know exactly where they lie. So we're sort of like the blindfolded person on a cliff, walking towards the cliff. We don't know where it is, but we know the further- So the
2: scientific doctor is warning us of risk and- can't be certain, but that's a case for extreme
4: prudence in our behavior, right? Exactly. You know, you, you listeners are the precautionary principle. There's only one planet we know of in the universe at this time that can support us. We're not going to find a planet B. So we've got to preserve the livability of this planet. Um, and the fact that there's uncertainty isn't our friend. It's it's a reason for even more yeah. concerted action because of the very right. real possibility that the consequences could be worse than the models predict. And historically, that has been the case with extreme weather events, with ice sheet collapse and other impacts.
1: That has been the case. Michael, in addition to your recent book, we also celebrate the fact that you have finally, after 12 yes. years... Uh, yay! Uh, been uh, awarded by the the win in a defamation lawsuit against you twelve years ago. Um, that that was a defamation suit that got in horribly personalized, I would say. Um, and 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 hence, you know, the 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 arc of justice moves slowly, but it moves, I would say. But here here's my question. Over the past 12 years, has the war on science changed in intensity, in character, in strategy? What have you been observing on the evolution of the war on science?
4: Yeah, thanks uh, both for the comment and the and the question. And yeah, it's, it's been 12 years until... Uh in the in waiting uh, until we uh, did get our day in court and it was a defamation uh, case brought by me by, brought by us against uh, two uh, bloggers for the right-wing competitive enterprise institute and the national review uh, online um, two writers uh, for these two publications that had um, uh, made accusations of scientific fraud against me had compared me to a convicted child molester
1: child molested She's. yeah, yeah.
4: Uh, Jerry Sandusky uh you know Penn State and uh, the football coach and they they took advantage of that particular uh situation to to try to you know to to subject me to these uh very horrible defamatory comments and you know it's one thing to criticize science and to criticize scientists. Um, that, that, that that's appropriate. That's okay. you know there is freedom of speech, but freedom of speech has its limits. You can't, uh, you know, falsely cry uh, fire in a crowded theater. That's not protected speech. And you know making false and defamatory accusations against scientists is not uh, protected speech. Um, because I'm a public figure, there's a very high standard to win uh, such a case. You have to prove what's known as uh, actual malice. Which is to say, not only were their statements false, they knew that their statements were false or wow. uh, that they. Well,
1: they, this, the comparison to the convicted child molesters, what I found personally, too, was so completely unacceptable because it just personalized the whole. It's not That's like right. even they were doubting your science. They just right. personalized it in a completely horrific way.
4: Yeah, it was, it was certainly, I, I think, seen as an aggravating factor. Um, they had defamed me by making accusations of scientific fraud, which are very serious, but they had also sort of added fuel to the fire with that inflammatory comparison. And mm. the jury, it was a it was a very smart, uh, well-educated, um, uh, young, diverse Washington, D.C. jury. And they saw through the smoke and mirrors that the other side tried to put, put up during the trial. And I was really proud of them you know they they saw through that and and they made the right decision um Mm. they awarded us a million dollars in punitive damages um and you know if i get that money uh you know i will uh i'll I'll probably um uh, contribute it to uh some climate outreach uh uh, organizations We'll, we'll see if the whether or not the money ever arrives um it's not the point uh we 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 won, I feel this this moral victory. And moreover, it wasn't just about me and 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 sort of um defending uh, my reputation. I think it's about something more. and you allude to this. in the twelve years since we filed this case, so much has changed. The attacks have metastasized um social media the the sort of um, you know the, the the caustic environment that one now encounters on social media um uh in and it's there the layers of of uh of misogyny and and racism and all sorts of um other attributes that come into this toxic mix um uh, i the, some of the worst attacks are uh, my, my female colleagues are, are subject to some of the most horrible attacks on social media. And so our entire body politic now has uh, sort of been poisoned by this bad faith, the same sort of bad faith that we were subject to uh, more than you know 12 years ago. Um, and so I think there was a poignancy, even though it took so long for this decision, for the decision to come now at this time when yes, scientists are yes. under
1: ironically, ironically.
4: Yeah. yeah. I, it felt like actually it, this was the right time for this decision the right to time. come. Because scientists feel so under attack, and not just climate scientists, but public health scientists um, who are trying to advise. You know our uh, policymakers and uh, our population on um, the need to you know to 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 vaccinate um, to deal with the uh, pandemic. The yeah, know
2: the the disinformation is is kind of out of control. I mean, a, a, a last question. You've been very generous with your time, Michael. But. Um, I mean, I can't believe the Competitive Enterprise Institute were, were one of the, you know, they present themselves as a body of business uh, with right. respectable corporations associated with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So thank you for, for your work correcting them. And this is really just my last question really is, is you know, there continues to be this climate denial, def, deflection uh, that you've done a great job of, of uh, kind of archiving and, and speaking about the use of bots and, uh, you know, electronic uh, devices to sort of uh, ruin in the debate um it, you know it's 2024 now uh this kind of stuff used to happen in 2004 or something 20 years ago and it kind of may have seemed like legitimate debate would you caution people uh right now involved in lobbying against government policy or action by governments that they're leaving a trail uh, and that they may risk future liability because of the frankly incredibly irresponsible way that they're trying to steer
4: us uh to to ignore this problem well, it, it's a great question. I mean, you know, we saw in, in the case of tobacco, the tobacco industry, um, that, uh, you know, they were finally brought to justice. There was a massive lawsuit in the United States, a RICO suit. Um, they, they were basically found to have engaged in a racketeering, basically a conspiracy um, to hide the the damaging impact of, of their product. and you know, scale that up by at least an order of magnitude, because far more people are being damaged, far more lives will be lost because of the impacts of human-caused climate change than were lost to uh, tobacco products. And so you could argue that an even greater crime to humanity um, has been done by bad actors in the fossil fuel industry than the bad actors in the tobacco industry who now been brought to justice to some extent. And and some people have viewed that litigation as a model for what we might see. The fossil fuel industry, ExxonMobil's own internal documents back in the early 1980s, their scientists correctly predicted the warming that we would see by now, given business as usual emissions, and used the word catastrophic. To describe the consequences those aren't oh, the words Christiana's words or my words or Al Gore's words or the IPCC words those those are the words of ExxonMobil's own scientists
1: and therefore that's uh that's why they put on such a fight um right. because the consequences of their actions are so amplified and exponentiated actually with compared right. to the consequences of of smoking that's right. um, uh, M- Michael, um, sorry, I actually don't want to let you go, but, um, <laughs> but, but my ears are being pulled here, but I did want to just sneak one more question in, which, sure. um, k- keeps me up at night, honestly, which is, and I'm not a scientist, so I would love to hear it from you, which is this appalling, frustrating gap between the science that keeps on getting more granular and more concerning and the lack of action that is not, uh, keeping the pace of science. It seems to me that the gap between science and action keeps on increasing, whereas it should get shorter and shorter or closer and closer. And so I, I just would love to hear from you. Is that frustrating to scientists is it you know how how do you how, how do you react what is your visceral reaction to that reality
4: yeah thanks for that question i think we all feel that frustration uh, all of us who are you know connected to this issue who are passionate and have been fighting for action for for years um and there is this growing disconnect you know after cop26 the 26 uh, conference of the parties um Clim- international climate conference 2 years ago Uh, there was some significant progress. We saw, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, emissions reductions, the countries of the world had uh, committed to emissions reductions that had the potential to keep warming below 3 Celsius. Now, that's still way too much warming, but it's much less than where we were headed towards more than 4 or even almost 5 degrees Celsius, you know, prior, for example, to the Paris uh, Agreement. So there was some real progress there. There was a feeling that we were making uh, policy progress that there was um you know uh th- that there was uh, some good faith on the part of the the leading uh polluters, um the united states uh china uh was coming to the table the eu um over the last 2 years we haven't seen nearly as much progress cop 27 uh, a year later um there really wasn't any ratcheting up of the the reductions and 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 Again, the commitments made at COP26 don't come anywhere close to keeping warming below 1.5 Celsius. They keep warming, you know, possibly below 2 degrees Celsius if if all of the commitments were kept and kept on time. And we've already missed sort of the the deadlines on some of those. Um, COP27, there was no further ratcheting up of the commitments there was an agreement on loss and damage which was important uh potentially bring you know uh, the, the developing countries into the world those who are being most impacted deserve uh you know some some resources from the industrial countries that created this problem in the first place to help them cope with the uh, impacts that they're already dealing with and 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 to help them sort of leapfrog past the stage of fossil fuel economic development um so there was a little bit of progress that COP28 You know, in my view, there was a little bit of lip service that, um, you know, there's some language that, you know, uh, I forget the exact language that there's a commitment to. Move away, I think.
1: away, away. yeah, move away from fossils. Transition away from. Transition away.
4: And I think I I made a joke, uh, you know, at the time, it's like, you know, your doctor telling you, that you've got high blood pressure and you're in danger of, you know, a heart attack. And it's like, oh, don't worry, doctor, I will transition away from from fat and junk food. Trust me. I mean and it's cigarettes. <laughs> and cigarettes, you know, I will transition away from cigarettes. It's in without a time frame, without any actionable targets, it doesn't really mean very much. And so I was critical. I was supportive of the the developments of COP26. I was a little disappointed with COP 27 and deeply disappointed with COP 28. And I think there's some soul searching to be done. Has, you know, have we lost our way? Has the, has the, the, um, the, the UN process, um, has it become compromised by petro states? Um, you know, the last two meetings have been held in fossil fuel states. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and so there's a sense of greenwash. It's like they're getting some credibility from holding the meeting, but at the same time, you know, Saudi Arabia and other fossil fuel states did everything they could to scuttle any meaningful progress for emissions reductions um, at, uh, at, at each of these, uh, COP27, COP28. So I think there needs to be some, some real soul searching here. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like the COP process has lost its way. And the the people need to sort of reseize uh, control of that process. Um, and you know there are a few things we could do. For example, changing the rules so that one bad actor country can't block the entire agreement. Maybe requiring some like a two thirds uh, majority of contributing countries to to ratify a resolution. Um, there's some other changes that could be made that would prevent a few bad apples, frankly, from scuttling uh you know and any meaningful agreement
1: um michael um sadly we have to come to a close and our uh traditional close is to ask our guests uh one reason for outrage of which there are many (laughs) and one reason for optimism and it just strikes me that your book actually um, is follows very much that logic of the outrage and the optimism. Yeah. But, um, but just wondered if, if you had to, which we're inviting you to, to put it into a few sentences yeah. at this point, at the beginning of 2024, what, what is it that makes you most outraged and, uh, and what keeps your glow of hope alive?
4: Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, you know, uh, I'll be succinct. Um, the outrage is that um, we could have acted decades ago and it would have been um, much easier to avoid catastrophic warming. But the fossil fuel industry did everything they could full, you know, they had full knowledge of the scale of the threat. Their own scientists had told them and they chose instead, as you alluded to, to hide their own internal, um, uh, you know, uh, deliberations and reports. and double down in a uh, campaign, a, a, a massive disinformation campaign to attack the science and the scientists who are coming to the very same conclusion as their own scientists have secretly come to. That's the outrage. Um, the optimism is the fact that despite their bad actions and despite that setback and and decades of lost opportunity, literally, it's still not too late. Um, we still hold the future in our hands and young people in particular, Um, give me optimism because I really feel like this, the youngest generation, they get it. They understand the dimensions of this threat. Um, They recognize um, and they see through the bad actors and the bad actions. Um, And I think that they're ready to hold their policymakers accountable. And I think we will see that in this next American election. Um, And it's essential because without American leadership on this issue, We will not achieve the action that's necessary. So it really comes down to young folks here in the United States turning out in this next election and voting Mm. for policymakers who will do what's right by us rather than simply act as apologists for special interests.
1: Oh, boy, Michael, from your lips to God's ears. May that be the case. May that be the case. Let's hope. I hope hope they
2: are listening up there. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Michael, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. It's always lovely to have you um, and to our me. listeners again. Uh, Michael's recent book, highly, highly recommended. And we will have it on the show notes. Um and 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 we will also be commenting on it, uh, Michael, in our um post-recording conversation. Thank you so, so much. We really appreciate. Your time, your wisdom, and your uh, always hard work.
4: It's always delightful uh, talking with you. So thanks so much. I look forward to talking again. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: I mean, Michael Mann is just such a brilliant um, scientist and communicator. What did you both come away from that discussion with?
2: Well, I I feel that he is... An absolute expert in striking the very narrow line between uh, panic, uh, freeze, and uh, and and uh, kind of uh, oh, oh, any any kind of unwarranted optimism I think he he nails the situation is sort of serious he has to me once again I kind of come from medical family he he has to me that the 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 bedside manner of the of the serious doctor who is telling you uh, that you have to fundamentally change the way you're living and and what you're consuming and there's no time to waste but you shouldn't despair either It's a time for absolute clarity and focus, and you can get through this. You know, the the 1.5 degree Copernicus x-ray test results are terrifying, but we're being advised here by an expert how to conduct ourselves to get to where we need to go because we can't fail. I heard that.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that, Paul. Um, it, it's such a difficult balance, right? Not to fall into irresponsible, whatever, la la land, or to go to the other extreme of uh, just assuming uh, a world that comes to an end. And and so how to and those are the two extremes, and how to walk that very fine line with based on science, right? Based on science. Is absolutely magnificent the way he does that because you can say okay well out of my you you could you you could say that most people try to walk that line or those of us who I, and I would put myself into that box try to walk that fine line but out of a sense of conviction of what I think is right. The difference between his way of doing it to the way I do it is that he doesn't put any morality into this. He doesn't say this is the right thing to do. He is very strict in standing in the science with the data and then arguing that that middle ground is entirely possible, which is a different take. You come out of the same balance, but you start from a different place. And I just think he does that so brilliantly.
0: Yeah, Um, I completely agree. I I mean, I came away from that feeling like, which is what you hope to come away from um, these conversations, feeling like this is a tricky place, but we've got to double down and fight for what we know is still feasible. And actually, that's amazing that he's able to, to draw that out of people. Um, as uh, as as situations become so dire, because he's not shying away from the reality. I mean, he knows better than most just how dire this situation is. But such a privilege to have him back on. Um, right. Anyone else? Yeah. I mean,
2: just well, I just would 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 say that there are some incredibly positive things as well to to throw into this. You know, the Copernicus report is there as a as a as a caution. But I'm getting incredibly excited by the transition plans that are coming out of investors and corporations now. You know, we're seeing a a sort of fundamental change in the attitude of of major organisations towards this. I've seen some great research recently that came from a a mutual friend of ours, uh, which is talking about how, um, we in the climate change movement could be much better organized when we look at the people on the on the, on the the kind of fossil fuel negative side, uh, how we can adopt some of their tricks. And to be honest with you, I'm also somewhat inspired by revolutions in computing, where we've now got kind of um, digital resources that can think really holistically and in big ways to help us plan how we can respond to this. So just as we get scary news, we also have to remember the Good things that are happening the way we're evolving as a society in response to 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 this challenge so a a, a balanced way i'd I'd like to end on 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 this scary but necessary bit of information that i hope will help us to use that cliche redouble our efforts and increase our effectiveness
0: i'm afraid i'm going to ruin your balanced response just for a moment and i really apologize for that because i i love what you said but we have to come back to this soon because i was just reading a report just before we came on, from David Gallus in the New York Times, saying more Wall Street firms are now flip-flopping on climate. Last few days, J.P. Morgan, State Street, PIMCO, all pulled out of Climate Action 100. There's bad stuff happening in the financial services. Oh, show. don't get me wrong. That, that, okay. that, is,
2: that, is the, that is the fossil fuel industry that is owning yeah. more and more uh, uh, legislators in the United States. Uh, this big wounded animal is flexing its legislative muscle and it's, it's learnt that an attorney general or somebody who's on a committee somewhere can scare the bejesus out of a gigantic Wall Street bank who says, oh, well, you know, I don't have to do anything on climate change. That is a, a longer conversation for another day, but it is indeed terrifying.
0: Okay. <laughs> Thank you both. Lovely to talk to you as ever. We'll see you next week. And we're leaving you with some music from Luke Wallace. Come back. Bye. Great to see
1: you. Bye. Bye guys.
6: Hello, I'm Luke Wallace. I'm a folk singer and touring musician from the coast Salish territories called Vancouver, Canada. Uh, You're about to hear my song come back. And as a songwriter, I spend a lot of time, uh, trying to figure out how to write songs that capture this hopeful, but concerned energy around the environment and the state of, uh, ecology on earth, as well as, you know, social unrest and, um, you know, I'm obsessed with trying to find a hopeful message and an optimistic one in a, in a sea of uh, a lot of despair and legitimate concern. And um, this song, Comeback, is tapping into a, a global phenomenon, which is the sports comeback. And we all have some understanding of, of that. And I thought uh, it would be cool to write a song that ties in that notion of a comeback. And uh, I think we're well positioned right now as a society to, to uh, nourish in a little bit of a comeback around ecology and our relationship with the environment. So here you go.
3: We could make a comeback Save it for our kids And I could tell your son that I gave all I had to give To build a big wolf pack Get them howling at the wind We could make a comeback Feel the weight of it all and I let it sink in But this ain't nothing new, it's what I'm always thinking And a break in the flow is like my mind blinking A moment of rest, nana. In the pause I can feel all the weight start to lift Like a rift in the clouds, like my favorite song Louder, story coming clear over the crowd So I listen in close, nana. Yeah, and I hear the future go something like this Sound of the singers coming through crisp Steady ourselves, climb back to the bliss And welcome anything that walks through that mist And so I insist that we go there together Start from the bottom, build something much better Whatever the weather, it's right on time Cause the moments arrive now, now And we can make a comeback And save. It for our kids and I could tell your son that I gave all I had to give to build a big wolf pack and get them howling at the wind we could make a comeback See, the truth is that I don't know where to begin In the ocean, the forest, the political grin The methane, the coup, the violence within Guess I'll look for a sign, nah, nah And the second I look, ah, there it appears Hiding behind all that sorrow and fear And when I look in your eyes, I can see it so clear We're one in the same, nah, nah So come back to love, come back to the land Come back together and come lend a hand Come back to the soil, come back to the sand Come back to yourself, nah, nah We could make a comeback And save it for our kids And I could tell your son that I gave all I had to give And I wish you hadn't done that Thrown off you to the wind, but we can make a comeback
5: There you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Clay here. This week, Luke Wallace on the podcast as our musical guest. Beautiful song. And I really loved this recording. You can listen to more of Luke's music by checking the show notes and going to LukeWallaceMusic.com. I want to point out to our audience that Luke is also an environmental educator and speaker. He uses his songs and stories. To communicate and inspire hope, something we highly respect and revere on this podcast. And a lot of our audience is involved in education and events surrounding climate and environmental advocacy. And it's such a privilege to have on artists who are not only multidisciplinary, but also weave their talents into bringing conversation about nature and climate uh, to places that so desperately need it. Go check them out. Luke Wallace Music Com. Thank you, Luke. Okay, back in the saddle this week after Christiana's mini-series, Our Story of Nature, I had an absolute jam placing and making some music for that series. It didn't get mentioned in the episode enough that we are loving your response to the series. Um, We call these episodes deep dives within our team. But these style episodes are very popular with all of you. And so if you have not listened, the door to the party is still open. So come on in. You can go stream those episodes. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Our Story of Nature is the title of the series. Shout out to Mundo Común. Christiana, Issa, our producers Jenny and Shannon and Sarah. These episodes are an expression of our truest selves, our community, our work. Thank you for listening. Okay, where was I? Oh, Michael Mann returning to the pod. Our fragile moment, how lessons from the Earth's past can help us survive the climate crisis is his latest book. Link to get yourself a copy is in the show notes michaelman.net go check it out okay short credits this week that is all from me I'm grateful to be back into weekly format episodes good to have the gang back together thank you all for joining us for listening for tuning in we'll see you next week